0: You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. Fred Rogers. I'm sure you've also seen the quote of Fred Rogers sharing that when he would see scary things on the news, his mother would say to him, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. We need heroes and we need to not just look for the helpers. We need to become the helpers. And this is no different than always, but needed now more than ever. This week, we have witnessed families being stripped from each other, children being taken from their parents here in the United States at our border. This is a human crisis, and this is not one that started this week and not one that will end with an executive order. Make no mistake, we are still in crisis. In light of the human right violations that we are witnessing, our short-term game is that we should be calling Congress. We should be donating to those who are on the front line in the trenches with these families. We should be marching. That's the short-term game, but we need a long-term game too. We need to do more. We need to zoom out and ask ourselves, what in the world brought us here? In my work, I do a lot of sitting with people. And in the space of being with my clients, I witness so much anger. There is so much anger. When I turn on social media or turn on the news, I see anger. When I zoom out, I see anger. So much anger. And here's the thing about anger. We're hardwired for it. Anger is an emotion that is meant to show up when we feel like our rights are being violated or we're witnessing rights being violated. Rights being violated is a perfect time for anger to show up. So we need anger and anger isn't going anywhere. But here's the thing. Anger needs to be transformed into action, into something else. In Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, she says this about anger. She says, anger is a catalyst. Holding on to it will make us exhausted and sick. Internalizing anger will take away our joy and spirit. Externalizing anger will make us less effective in our attempts to create change and forge connection. It's an emotion that we need to transform into something life-giving, courage, love, change, compassion, justice. Here's something else I know about anger, though. Anger can show up as a primary emotion when we feel like our rights have been violated, but most often, anger is secondary. Most often, there is something underneath the anger that is being shadowed or clouded by the anger, and usually what that primary emotion is, is fear. Here's something we know about the brain. When we experience new experiences, new situations, new people— We're constantly making judgments and our brain is constantly categorizing that information. From very, very, very young, our brains are looking to see, is this something that feels familiar or similar to me or is it different? And we take in this information, we categorize it. What can happen though in the process of doing that is that things that feel familiar feel safe and things that feel different feel unsafe. Our brain is built to protect us, but in the effort of protecting us, our brain often prioritizes efficiency over accuracy. And what can happen in that space is that things that feel familiar will be categorized as safe, and things that are not familiar can be categorized as unsafe. And what happens is that when we begin to see the other side as dangerous, the conflict starts to be framed as good versus evil. Intrinsically, we all have a moral compass that says that people should be treated with basic human rights. What happens though is that when we begin to deem another person or a group as being unsafe or evil, we may start to use language or create images that puts that person or that group in a category that is not human we begin to dehumanize that person or that group. Examples of this are when we call immigrants aliens or when we call police officers pigs. Successful dehumanizing creates moral exclusion, so groups targeted based on their identity, gender, ideologies, skin color, ethnicity, religion, age, occupation are depicted as less than or evil. This happens every day, but let me give a simple example. Let's say you're scrolling through social media and you see a comment. Let's imagine that this comment maybe goes against your own personal ideologies or values or political beliefs. And this is a person you don't know at all, but immediately this person is put into a certain category in your brain. Your brain within this category has a whole bunch of generalizations and assumptions. And you make these generalizations and assumptions based on this one comment that you read, that you categorized as falling into this certain ideology. And now you believe that you know this person and you will respond to them with all of the anger and hatred that you hold for this group. Responding in this way leaves no room Or dialogue, effective dialogue, connection with this other person as a human, allowing you to see them as a human. And it definitely leaves no room or possibility for change. We have two systems in our body. We have the sympathetic system, which is our stress response or fight or flight. When this is turned on, we get tunnel vision. We only see one thing. We're not able to see the context around it, or we're not able to zoom out and see different perspectives. We only see what feels like the danger in front of us or the threat in front of us. There's another system in our body, the parasympathetic system. This is a system that allows us to connect. But when we are in fight or flight, We're not able to do the whole zoom out thing and see this person as a human thing and connect with them thing and engage in effective dialogue which potentially could produce change thing. We're not able to do it. One of the dangers of our digitized world now is that we are losing the art of communication and connecting in real time, real life with a real person in front of us. I have an episode coming up with Dr. Dan Siegel where we explore this more deeply. But in our digitized world, this world that is not going anywhere, we are not able to really see the human behind the text. As Brene Brown would say, people are hard to hate close up. But in the digitized world, it's very hard to get close to really see somebody, to see them as human, to identify your similarities. I believe that what happened this week when we saw the images of families being separated at the border, children being taken from their parents, is that a group who has for so long been dehumanized with the images and the language of alien, we began to rehumanize these people. We could relate It was familiar, and that was painful. And we were outraged that they were being treated the way that they were being treated because we could see ourselves in them. So now we need to talk a little bit about privilege. I am a woman. I am a cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied woman. I was raised Catholic. I am half Mexican and I am proud of that heritage, but I have light skin and green eyes and light hair. And because of that, I walk through the world as a white woman. And that gives me unearned privilege. It's unearned because I did nothing to earn it. I was born with my father's skin color and with light eyes and light hair. I was born on this side of the border. I didn't earn these things, these are things that I was born with. Early on in my career, when conversations of privilege came up, I would spend a lot of time on my experiences of oppression, which I have experienced as a woman. But then I would take up the rest of the time and the rest of the space trying to make the case for why and how I am not racist, which ignored the part of the conversation that needed to happen which was owning my own privilege. Listen, intersectionality is a thing. You can have privilege in one area of your life and not have privilege in another. You can be white and be a woman. You can be white and you can be gay. You can be white and you can have a disability. You can be white and you can be transgender. You can be white and not have the holidays that your religious faith celebrates be honored in the workplace. You can be white and be poor. You can be white and not be a citizen of this country. But we still cannot ignore that as a white person, you will experience the world very differently than a person of color. So intersectionality exists, but this is not implying that any form of privilege is exactly the same as another, or that people lacking in one area of privilege understand what it's like to be lacking in other areas. I've also had the experience of when I face my privilege, that easily slipping into feelings of guilt or feelings of shame. Just this week, I was reading about what was happening at our borders, and I had spent probably a couple hours just consumed with reading about it and thinking about it and talking to others about it. And then I had the thought, oh my gosh, I need to go to bed. I need to be able to wake up tomorrow and be a parent and be able to hold space for my clients. Like, I need to do something else to get my mind off of this so I can rest tonight, so I can go to bed. So I closed my computer, and I immediately had the thought, there's privilege. It is a privilege to have the option to close my computer And to say to myself, I need to not think about this. And I have that choice because it's not my life. I am not living it. I'm feeling greatly impacted by it, but it's not my life. And I immediately felt shame. So here's the thing. In a moment like this, we still need to name it as privilege. We can own our privilege in the same moment that we show ourselves self-compassion. They can coexist and they should. People in positions of power, which a person with privilege has power, people in positions of power are called to step in, lean in, and show up and activate around these issues. But if we draw a line between ourselves and compassion, and we show up with compassion for others, but we do not lend ourselves that same compassionate hand, then we're actually creating a bigger boundary between ourselves and others. Dr. Kristen Neff has spent majority of her career researching self-compassion, and she has found in her research that the relationship between self-compassion and other focused concern is actually very, very strong. Kristen Neff has a great book called Self-Compassion, but I went to some of her original research to see what those findings were. And in her study, where she examined the link between self-compassion and concern for the well-being of others and other focus concern variables, including compassion for humanity, empathetic concern, perspective-taking, altruism, and forgiveness, she found that among her participants, those who had higher levels of self-compassion were linked to higher compassion for humanity and others. So caring for yourself actually lends itself to being able to show up with compassion for others. So we do have to take care of ourselves while not forgetting or letting go of the fact that it is a privilege to be able to do that. It is a privilege to be able to close the computer and turn off the TV and not think about what is happening, to not think about race, to not think about being at risk because you are not a citizen. It is a privilege to be able to take that moment to say, I need rest. I need to go run this off. I need to go forget about this for a second. It's a both and thing. We both need to show compassion for ourselves so that we can step in and step up and activate around these issues. And it is a privilege to be able to do so. Now let's talk about empathy. Empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Empathy leads to rehumanizing the other. Michael Ventura has done some work around applied empathy, and I recently came across these seven archetypes that he describes ways that we can show up in the world with empathy. And I love these archetypes because sometimes I fall into this belief, and I know others do as well, where we feel like there's only one way to be an activist. There's only one way to show up and help. And the thing that's so beautiful about our diverse world and our country is that we are so different and there are so many ways in, that we can show up and there's so many skill sets that we have that we can apply to activism. So let me describe these seven archetypes for you. And you can read more about this at wearecebrosa.com to read more about Michael Ventura's work around applied empathy. So here are the seven archetypes of applied empathy that Michael Ventura laid out. And as I read them, I invite you to ask yourself, "Is is this something that I can do? Is this something that I'm good at? Is this a way in which I can step in and step up? So the first is the sage. The sage is somebody who is able to be present. They inhabit the here and now. They are able to hold space. Because when you do that, you're able to understand somebody in a very different way, in a very unique and personal way. Then there's the inquirer. This is the questioner. This is the person that steps up and says, I have a question about this. They interrogate assumed truths, and they ask why, why, why? Then there's the convener. This is the post. This is the person who can bring people together. They know how to create a space, a safe space, so that good conversation and connections can occur. Then there's the alchemist. This is the experimenter. They test and test and try They say, I have a question about this, and I want to research it. I want to test it. Then there's the confidant. This is the listener. They have patience, and they're able to listen and absorb. Then there's the seeker. This person dares. They are confident and unafraid to take the risks, putting themselves out there. Then there's the cultivator. This person commits, and they cultivate. They know the long game, and they know what to do today in order to get there. I invite you to ask yourself right now and to look at yourself and your individual skill sets and to ask yourself right now, what can I do? What am I good at? What do I know that I'm good at? That is your role, and that is your call. That is what you're called to do. And then invite in creativity. What are ways in which you can offer support to the movement, to the movement that is already happening, but that we need more of? We need more traction. We need more momentum. We need pervasive leadership. And this can happen at every level. Maybe what you do as a leader is what you do with your children and how you talk to them about these things, supporting the next generation. What does leadership look like for you? So in sort of refreshing our memory of what we've talked about so far, we've talked about the need to rehumanize each other. So this means we need to be mindful of those moments that we feel pulled into dehumanizing the person or the group in front of us and allowing ourselves to rehumanize that person. We've talked about the need to reflect on privilege how self-compassion can hold hands with compassion for others, and the different ways that we can show up as activists. Now, let's finish this episode with talking about the kids. How do we talk to our kids about these things? How do we enlist them in the movement? Beverly Daniel Tatum, in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria?, She's a psychologist who explains the development in racial identity. She says in her books, quoted, Children who have been silenced often enough learn not to talk about race publicly. Their questions don't go away. They just go unasked. And this can be related to anything, not just race. This can be related to sexuality, gender, spirituality, disability, and social class. And it is not enough to just set an example for our children and expect them to follow, to just model it and expect that they're going to follow that. Because they are, just as we were and are, bombarded with messages every single day. Asking them to just follow our example is like asking them to swim upstream. They're seeing things everywhere, in the books that they're reading, in the shows that they're watching. The protagonist is most often going to be white. The characters are most often going to be able-bodied. The heroes are most often going to be boys. And the relationships that are portrayed to them are going to be heteronormative. We have to talk to our kids openly, honestly. We need to invite the questions or say things like, I think that's unfair. What do you think? Or say something like, some people believe blank, but I don't believe that. Instead, I think blank. And then follow that up with asking them, what do you think? Give them a chance to explore some of these ideas for themselves as well. Talk to them about activism. We can tell them that an activist is someone who sees something that is unfair and decides to do something to make it more fair. Some might say, well, I want my children to be colorblind. I don't want them to see color or race. But here's the thing. If we tell our children to not see color, we're also asking them to not talk about it, to not ask questions. And their little brains are constantly categorizing. It's what our brains are hardwired to do, as we were saying earlier. Like with like. What is different? What is the same? And they will, because their brains are doing this, often point out differences that they see amongst each other. But when they are silenced or pick up on the idea that pointing out differences is not okay, they begin to think there must be something wrong or bad about these differences. Children are asking us to help them understand their world. And if we stop the conversation, we lose the opportunity to talk to our children and the next generation about privilege and humanizing and compassion and empathy. Usually we don't wanna have these conversations with our children because it just frankly makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, it's hard to talk about why Black Lives Matter is a thing or the legacy of our government's relationship with its native citizens or why some individuals are called illegal or called aliens. Choosing to say, I want you to be colorblind is privilege because a black child or a child of color who looks in the mirror can't be blind to color because when they look in the mirror, that is what they see. When we pretend that we don't see race, we invalidate the experiences of people of color. We comfort only ourselves, not them. We are denying our privilege in those moments. And in turn, we're teaching our children that it's improper to talk about race, which just continues the cycle. Silence isn't neutral. We need to talk to our children about the history of our own families. I'm half Mexican and I'm half Irish. And there, were, there was a time when our ancestors, our Irish ancestors, immigrated here. And when they first came here, they were persecuted. But in order to no longer be persecuted, they became the oppressors. And that is part of our history. But here's the thing, is we can also tell our children, while yes, this is part of our history, you have a brain and you have a heart and you have a choice. What's really beautiful about our children and our relationship with them is they're going to be the least judgmental partners in this work. We don't have to know all the answers. In fact, it's a beautiful thing to say to your child, I don't know, but let's find out because then they get to witness you evolving and questioning and changing and learning. A resource that I often reference is raceconscious.org where they give really great tips and ideas of how we can talk to our children directly about race and privilege. I am grateful to you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I aim to have more episodes like this ideally with somebody else so that it's a dialogue because I truly believe that it's actually in the context of dialogue and conversation that we can grow and learn and be challenged I wish today's episode was a conversation, Uh, but I do have one coming up with Angelica Malone, who is an educator. She's a third culture kid herself. She is a black woman married to a white man. And we talk about how she talks to her children about race in their family. So look for that coming up. In the podcast notes, I will leave information about the resources mentioned in this episode and also ways in which you can engage in the short-term game with what's happening right now at our borders, who to call, where to call, where the marches are happening, where to find out about marches, where to donate so you can support those who are at the front lines. To end this episode, I'm going to share a quote from Eli Wiesel. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice. But there must never be a time when we fail to protest. There are things that we can do. There are things that you can do. There are things that you specifically, individually are called to do. We are better than this. Let's go. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. If you did, you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Have a great day.